We feeling good. We doing it right tonight. Making the level feel good. I hope you all feeling good. I got my new Gucci prescription sunglasses on side and on inside. On side. On inside. That's an onside kick. And I'm feeling super delicious to introduce the next podcast, the final in my series of my fall recordings. And I so I apologize for the delay. This Passione project goes on the back burner sometimes when you are, you know, doing actual be a musician and very difficult to find time to work on the podcast. But anyway, this is the guy, the mentor, the man. He's running it up in Westchester and all over the world, worldwide, international, Mr. Charlie Legon, saxophonist, woodwind extraordinaire, educator. A ranger, everything, the main guy. He's as cool as it gets. And what's always super hilarious to me is you hang out with young, these youngins who haven't been exposed to hipness. I mean, Charlie is leading the fight against the tragically unhip in Westchester at the gold standard of music education that is the Lagan Music School. He's leading the fight because you'll be hanging out with these cats. They just don't have any exposure to cool people. They go from their white bread school to their white bread vacation. No offense to these cats. It's okay, man. We learn to be cool. You learn. It's a learning thing. You can't be born cool. There's only a few of those people. They're real birds. Anyway, these kids who be like, yo, I don't know. This seems like a little extreme. I don't know if Charlie will think this is cool or man. And I'm like, dude, Charlie played music through the seventies and the eighties. He's Whatever you think is cool, like wearing a potato sack on stage or wearing your headphones, like you have no concept of fashion and or being cool and or hip music. Yeah, next contestant, come on down. Woo, dang. Anyway, that's fired up. I've clearly had enough caffeine. I'm going to re-listen to this and be like, why did I just drink so much coffee? Let's talk about some Charlie quotes. Here's my favorite Charlie line that I steal and I say it all the time. You learn something every day if you pay attention. Whew, so true. I say that every day now. Somebody hits me to a new band, a new chord change, something cool. I'm like, this is cool. Another great Charlie quote I say all the time. A mind works best like a parachute. Open. Whew, takes that one. Bingo, bango. This podcast with Charlie is cool. It's a shorter one, so I'm gonna play, I'm gonna attach a couple tunes to this. I should mention that we both had to go work. You know, his wife is the boss. He's the boss. Roseanne Lana, shout out to Roseanne because you're awesome and you do all of the things that make things happen. So big thank you to you if you're listening to this. Charlie's played with Buddy Rich, Woody Herman, Chuck Manjone, and Kid Creel, among Many others. He went to the Eastman School of Music and then came down to New York and was a cat in New York doing New York stuff. So this is good, a good conversation. I get a little obsessed with him talking about being a working musician in the 70s. I listened back and I was like, okay, all right. I could have 
let it move on. But I got real, for real, real into this. Uh, so, and he talks. So the first track, the track into it I'm going to play is called Stool Pigeon. Ah, cha-cha-cha. That's Charlie on the horns and the arrangement. And then the song I'll play at the end is You're a Wonderful Thing, Baby. Nope, I said it wrong. I'm a Wonderful Thing, Baby. And he did both the horn parts on them. And I called Charlie. I was like, I, you know, I just want to make sure you, I know you did Stool Pigeon, but you, this is you on You're a Wonderful Thing, Baby. I'm a Wonderful Thing, Baby. And Charlie, <laughs> this is just Sunday. He's that cool. He's like, I, yeah, I did all the woodwinds and arranged it and wrote it. But I mean, whatever, man. Even if I didn't, it'd be cool. You could say it. Like, <laughs> just the cat is the king. Please enjoy this podcast with my main dude, Mr. Charlie Legon. And please enjoy Stool Pigeon. Cha-cha-cha. <laughs> Make a deal, baby, make it worth your while So we told it all 
in returning on a credit card And a bundle green and a spanking new identity And a condo down in Miami He bought a plane, a boat, jewelry But he couldn't buy any company music lovers i am here with in the house that he built the great the best music school in all of westchester county happy to be here happy to be employed here and happy to be hanging out with the man the myth the legend charlie legand he has a little bit of a cold today let's do a voice check how are you sounded paul i have i have uh, laryngitis but but let me take one of these these lutein cough drops. I, I I think it might help. If he just has one cough drop, I think he'll be able to make it through this very intense podcast. Uh, I, I think I think my voice is coming back. It's back, wow. ladies and gentlemen. Wow, it's here. Uh uh. Oh, wow, these lutens are great. I have the, the honey lemon. Wow, honey lemon, unbelievable. Classic flavor. Good. Uh, good. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. Charlie, thank you for sitting down and talking with us. Uh, Always you, a pleasure uh, talking to you, Paul. Come on. Come on. You have the best stories ever, and I want to even just jump right in. Whatever you want to talk about, I'll be happy to talk about. You told... So, there's a, you played with a wonderful band, still do to this day, Kid Creel and the Coconuts. This is true. This is true. This is one of the hippest bands ever. And we're, I just want to get right into this because you were telling me a story just out there in the hallway about a possibility of why they didn't ever take off in America and why they were so popular in Europe. You were telling me this story, I believe, when you played on the Ed Sullivan show, right? With Kid Creole and the Coconuts? Uh, actually, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I, no we, we actually never played on the Ed Sullivan show. 
What was the show you played? Oh, on? oh, I, I'm I'm not quite sure, but I believe it was the now defunct Merv Griffin show. The Merv Griffin show. It was either the Merv Griffin show or um, Solid Gold. Uh, anyway, the um, Kid Creole and the Coconuts, uh, a big visual of the uh, the show, were three beautiful, bombastic blonde girls um, who had all kinds of costume changes and really danced uh, great stuff, really cool, innovative stuff. And um, But they were very uh, European-influenced, even though uh, two of the girls at the time were American girls. The head coconut, Adriana Kegi, who you know, mm-hmm. um, had was uh, from Switzerland and... Uh, they decided to um, kind of go against mainstream America for this show and, and throw out a little controversy. Mm. And um, by the way of them showing that was by not shaving their underarms. This is the one you were talking about, this right? Is, yeah, this yeah. is such a fascinating story to me and so relevant to what's going on right now. You know? So on uh, American TV, national TV, in the middle of this one uh, number, they all raise their arms because that was the dance step. And all you see is these this bushes of, of underarm hair mm. on these beautiful women. And America was not ready for that. <laughs> I'm not sure they still are. Yeah, probably not, right? You know, that but, is... But, but that's what the band was always about. The band was always about, if you told them they couldn't do something, they would just laugh and just do it. And just do that. Right. I mean, they never used profanity on the, um, you know, uh, on the airwaves or anything like that. But, um, but as far as, like, conceptional things, they were, they were absolutely fearless. And Adriana was kind of the brains behind the whole choreography and the, the visual component of it? Or was that all kind of Kid Creole? Or was well, it a combination? It was a combination. It was a real combination. The, the thing that um, was most amazing about this is, is basically, uh, with the exception of Adriana, it was really some kids from the Bronx yeah. uh, that, that just grew, you know, grew up loving everything from uh, Louis Jordan, Duke Ellington, uh, Bugsby Berkeley, uh, King Kong movie, you know, the damsel in distress and mm-hmm. everything. And they, uh, you know, growing up in in, uh, New York, which was such a musical melting pot uh, and everything else in the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s, that they were all influenced by this. And they just, you know, had this this, um, uh, musical depth and creativity, but also the concept of, of, uh, like, uh, bigger and better and, you know... um, uh, Cab Calloway in zoot suits with the with the girls in leopard skin, uh, you know, like jungle, uh, uh, scantily clad uh, outfits. I mean, yeah. It was just unbelievable. And how many pieces were in the band when you guys were like? What was the largest number? Oh boy. Okay, you count. Maybe. I didn't know there was going to be a math test, but you well, count. Well, I'm in a rough. Yeah. Well, no, you count. Okay, I'll count. There were two drummers. Two drummers. A percussionist. Okay. Um, three horns, three coconut dancers, a vibraphonist, a keyboard player, bass player, 
and a guitar player. Thirteen so far. And then, and then um, uh, August Darnell, who was a Kid Creole, uh, played a, a you know big uh, uh, acoustic guitar and sang. So fourteen piece band. Right. How many tour buses did you have to get across Europe with? Like three at the height at the height of uh, our popularity in Europe. We had three. Yeah. We had we had two for the band uh, alone. And then we had, um, because don't forget, with, with the band, because of the nature, this wasn't, you know, like just a, a rock band. We, we toured with hairstylists, um, wardrobe people, mm -hmm. a main guy and an assistant. Um, and then with the crew, it was a full, full catering and a full, you know, uh, uh, crew, full man crew, as well as, uh, you Tour know, all, all, the, all the semi uh, trucks, the semi-trailer trucks that would uh, carry all the PA, the stage, everything. It was amazing. Because it was probably a special stage, right? Like with, it's like a U2 concert where they yeah. tour with their own. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like no. their own everything because it's such an involved performance. Yeah. Right, yeah, riggers, the whole nine yards. Yeah. It was, it was pretty wild. And when you guys were touring Europe with that, and you must have been playing like the football stadiums, like as in the soccer stadiums, like well, we play we played everything like, from uh, bull rinks to uh, you know uh, big uh, jazz festivals, or they call them jazz festivals even today. They call them jazz festivals, but they're really you know uh, music festivals. Yeah. Uh, so we we played uh, a lot of those, and we played some some arenas. Because I think, you know, to an American, I still think we think like, you know, a European festival. We're talking like, I feel like they, the, every festival is so big compared to, you know, like 100,000 people might be just an average size festival, you know. Well, I don't know if average or not, but we played one like that in, in uh, Sardinia, I believe. Mm -hmm. That was huge, you know. And uh, I remember Italy and, and uh, Sardinia being the, uh, the biggest ones. Outdoor ones, anyway. Yeah, and you, were you guys like helicoptered in? No, no. <laughs> like that, like no, like. no. Actually, we, we weren't helicoptered in, but in, in um, there was one tour we were on, and they wanted um, they wanted the band to perform at a, a kind of a, a real special wedding. Mm. It was um, the son of Gunter Sachs, who was you know, head of Audi or, I guess, it's, is he the head of Audi or uh, uh, Peugeot? I don't know. Anyway. Large uh, yeah, European car you know, manufacturer. Maybe. I think it was, I think it was Audi. Anyway, his son was marrying the, sh the daughter of the Shah of Iran at the time. And there was no way we could fit this in uh, by getting there by bus. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, um, we flew in on, on their private Learjet to uh, make the, the wedding, which was at this uh, in, you know, pretty opulent castle in, in Germany. In Germany. Uh, I believe it was outside of Munich. And um, it was quite a vet that, that when you would, the guests walked in, they were greeted by um, uh, 12 grand pianos all playing Ravel's uh, Bolero simultaneously. <laughs> that was the entrance. <laughs> that was the entrance. <laughs> <laughs> You can't write this stuff, man. You can't write that. That's amazing. And were you guys the main, 
we entertainment, were, yeah, yeah, we, entertainment for yeah. this monster party. Yeah, yeah. we were. The, I mean, they had you know like a, a dance band there, whatever, like a, a wedding band, and then we yeah. were like kind of the uh, the main event. <laughs> it, it was pretty wild, and then we got back on the Learjet and joined the the tour, the, the buses and everything at the next uh, the next gig. And this this so you're playing you know stadiums, you're playing unbelievable uh, weddings, then would you guys fly back to the States and then play for 50 people at the bitter end? Or was it like just because of some armpit well, hair? I mean, no, what, or we were, was it like taking off in the States a little bit too? Or well, No, it, it was always, I, I, I like to think of it as that we were probably the, the most uh, well-known popular cult band in in America at that time, mm -hmm. you know, in the in the 80s. I mean, we'd come back, we'd play, um, you know, places like uh, like 3,000 seaters, stuff like that. Yeah. We'd play um, constantly, uh, you know, sell out places like the Ritz. Uh, it was called the Ritz, it's actually called Webster Hall now. Mm. And, um, you know, places like that. We'd play, uh, sell out a place like B.B. King's or or whatever. So there was a, a lot of popularity, and, and we would do those kind of venues in, in uh, all the major cities. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we weren't making that, cracking that, um, that you know, billboard the, top. Yeah, yeah. 50? Yeah. I mean, you must have been yeah. in the top 100 or something. The, the, the music was just way too eclectic uh, for America at the time. Mm. So, you know, you'd get some airplay, but it wasn't. Um, Got to remember in the 80s, it was like kind of the beginning of punk and, and rap. Yeah, uh, uh, dominating the airways, and even though there was a, actually some of the stuff he did was uh, um, predated some of the rap stuff that was uh, was out there, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much of um, a social urban kind of rap thing. It, this guy, you got to remember, Kid Creole was a, was a, a drama teacher and English major that uh, was teaching, I think, at Hofstra. Uh, uh, a decade earlier, uh, when his brother, who was the genius behind the first group that they were in, Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band, mm -hmm. uh, called him up and and uh, got him out of the uh, uh, you know uh, college academia, and got him out on the stage, you know, and writing songs and stuff. Yeah, and he said, "You can do this. This is a good idea." And. Oh, that's and it's oh that's that's interesting. I didn't. They're always. I feel like those people always kind of come from yeah. English drama world. You know, like well, and if it, uh, one of the uh, one of the things that I just absolutely loved about the band was this guy's lyrics. Mm. He he was writing uh, songs that were just like so off the mainstream that um, and different twists to it. So one time, I'll give you an example. Um, the piano player in the group, Peter Schott, brought in a, a song that he had written, and he had the melody and the groove and, you know, and mapped out. And uh, he had just one lyric, and the hook line was, you're a wonderful thing, baby. Okay? Good, Good lyric. So he gives it to, to August, Kid Creole, and he comes back a couple of weeks later, and the song has a totally different twist. The song is now called I'm a Wonderful Thing Baby. And it's all about like tongue in cheek, about, you know, what what a what a uh, ladies man he is and 
and you know there, there's a part of it let, uh, let me go th- let me go through my little black book you know he starts with the the A's and goes yeah. to the B's and at the time his, his uh, counterpart in the band was um, uh, sugar-coated Andy Hernandez who changed his name to Cody Mundy and he would be like uh, like you know dissing him oh man you know you know uh, making fun of him for his uh, bravado and macho uh, machismo mm-hmm. but it was all there was a lot of tongue-in-cheek and a lot of play and it was very theatrical in many ways but at the heart of it all was just an awesome awesome groove with all kinds of um, musical influences it was kind of like um, Cab Calloway meets James Brown and then goes to the Caribbean yeah hmm. always grooving that's oh, why yeah. you had yeah two drummers and a percussionist. I think you told me one time that, you know, the whole, what was the show? Two hour show, two and a half hour show? The beat would never stop. Yeah. There'd be yeah. no downtime in the whole. Yep. That's amazing. <laughs> and so you were in charge of all of the horn arrangements and stuff, right? Well, and I wasn't sure. Actually, uh, the way I got into the band was um, I got called to do um, a recording session, horn sweetening session. Um, uh, at a recording studio. Let's see, it was called, oh, Chapel, Chapel Music. Chapel Music was a big publishing company. Mm-hmm. Still is, I Still guess. Still is, I yeah. don't know, who, uh, you know who they're affiliated with now. But anyway, they had a 16-track recording studio, analog. And um, I walked in there, and that's where I met um, sugar-coated Andy Hernandez. Mm. And uh, I just remember... You know, we were uh, overdubbing uh, some horn parts, and he was the arranger in the beginning. He did all the all the horn and string arrangements, and this was just the most offbeat, off the wall stuff. You know, like uh, re re uh, reimagined horn parts. You know, stuff that you would think, no, no, this is this can't work. <laughs> and then you you put it to the music, and then it was like, wow, this is really hip, yeah. and and fresh. And uh, so anyway, uh, Andy took. Um, uh, a liking to me, we hit it off, and I became uh, his horn contractor. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it at the time, but a lot of the they were supposed to be up there doing, um, uh, you know, demos for Chapel Music of their songs that they could shop around for either their projects or you know another artist. Other artists and stuff. And uh, but what a lot of those uh, a lot of those demos ended up being on some of the early Kid Creole and the Coconut albums. So they were very resourceful. <laughs> they were these guys, uh, the original yeah. hustlers. Huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. They were like working. I said, it. Two, two kids from the Bronx, you know. <laughs> Actually, uh, four, four when it came down to it. That's so interesting. So you got called in on a session through Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. and then how how many years were you kind of in this whirlwind of their their orbit? I mean, you still are, but it was like well, was, let's say I was doing recording sessions regularly for them because they were doing a lot of other things. They were doing Kid Creole stuff. They were doing Don Armando and the Second Avenue Rumba Band was a, a, a follow up. Fonda Ray, uh, Geechee Dan Beachwood uh, Five. I mean, they were uh, they were really uh, into a lot of things, and partly because of the success of the first group that they were in in the early '70s, which was Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah Band, mm-hmm. and and they started out the first album. They had an international number one hit. And the name of that, uh, their hit was Cherche La Femme. So whenever you pull that one off in the music industry, you know, 
people you, take you serious and figure that lightning can strike twice with another hit or whatever. So an international number one. Yeah. Wow. So chapel music, yeah, they just gave them the longer yeah, leash. Carte blanche. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. They really right? had carte blanche. I mean, I guess they were, you know, recording uh, demos, but I'm saying some of those demos that I played on and some of the guys that I called to play on there ended up on Kid Creole albums. <laughs> This reminds me of like the Wu Tang story, or uh, you know, like these early. This is like, this is amazing that they were, <laughs> they were like, all right, well, we got so. Wait, did, the who performed that international number one hit? Was it Doctor Buzzard's Savannah that was, Band? Yeah, Doctor Buzzard's original Savannah Band, and that was uh, August and Stony Browder, and uh, Andy Sugarcoated Andy Hernandez, and a singer called um, Corey Day mm-hmm. was the lead singer on that, and. Um, they were uh, they were managed by Tommy Matola. Yep, he's a power player. Right, who later became the Kid Creole uh, manager. Uh, he uh, he had a uh, a management group called Champion Entertainment, mm-hmm. and uh, he managed among other people uh, Hall and Oates and Kid Creole and the Coconuts at the time. Wow, now my music business history is not that good. But maybe is he? Was he Mariah Carey's manager? Is that one of his well, things? Or like Michael Jackson or something? He did yeah, someone yeah, else. Yeah, huge, yeah, right? Tom, yeah. Tommy Mottola, um became the head of Sony Records. Mm-hmm. And it indeed did marry Mariah Carey. Yes. This is like early 90s, right? When that went down, yeah. When that went down, yeah. But he was managing us. It was like, you know, 1980. 1980. 79, 80, 81. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating, Charlie. Would he come to the rehearsals and be like, or the recordings and be like, no, we gotta, we gotta make this, change this, do this, like classic, or no. was he pretty hands off? Oh, Obviously, no. you had the international number one hit, so it was no, like, he was hands off. He just wanted to, he just wanted to book the band and 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 ink record deals, yeah, um, and uh, make money, make money. He was he was he was on the business side. He just liked. He liked the group. He appreciated it, and he went out to to uh, to make business opportunities uh, for the artists. Don't forget, he's also looking at these guys, uh, you know, from uh, Dr. Buzzer's original Savannah Band. So he knows these guys, you know, uh, have the potential uh, to to you know make big numbers. Which um, this is this is fascinating to me because. On a number of levels, because it's like you think of an international number one, like currently kind of happened this I believe past it summer. Was, I believe it was on the dance charts. On the dance charts? I believe it was a dance chart number one. It, it, it crossed over into the pop charts of the day, too, because don't forget, it, they, uh, Dr. Buzz's original Savannah band was, um, even though they had all these Caribbean roots and, you know, kind of similar to Kid Creole, they were also uh, more disco. In fact, they were kind of very, uh, probably the most cutting-edge disco band that um, that was around in the '70s, at the height of uh, you know the disco era. When disco is king, yes. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> and that's kind of when, right? Like I, you know, urban culture was being pumped into uh, suburban homes. This is fascinating, and so. What's fascinating to me is to think about how 
they were kind I mean, was it lumped into like a world music? World music wasn't even probably a thing. Was that like a thing? Or well, was you it had, like a new wave? Or had, like, they had, didn't know where to put you guys probably. You had like, 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 yeah. Oh, you. it was the most frustrating thing when you would go into a record store, which were, there were all over the, in New York in the 70s and early 80s, um, to find the, the latest Kid Creole record. And sometimes it would be in reggae. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would be in dance. Sometimes it would be in funk. So you never knew what they, America never knew how to categorize the band. Yeah. Corporate America couldn't package you into a little right. digestible nugget, right? Right, and you have to realize, uh, you know, by the, by the, um, by the 80s, everything was uh, pretty compartmentized. Yeah. And artists were probably getting raked over the coals, hand and fist, over the publishing rights. Mm-hmm. Over, I mean, I can't, the stories are mind-boggling. Well, it was very difficult for an artist to track anything then. Yeah. You know, I mean, computers, it wasn't a computer industry yet. So, you know, you, you got quarterly reports, and the quarterly reports uh, would go to the um, record company, um, and then they would uh, deduct what, you know, you, your production costs were, or whatever, mm -hmm. or tour costs, depending upon, uh, that would be the manager uh, most, uh, most of the time. And then whatever was left over was, you know, what the artist got. And that's interesting to think about because when, I, when you look back and read and listen about the way records were made to tape back in that era. Oh, yeah. I, what I found interesting to think now is that it was months of work. Maybe... You got to come in and nail it. You know what I mean? But I feel well, like let, let me tell you about that. During, especially during when we were doing the dance records, yeah. uh, disco records, right? Um, it was all analog, mm -hmm. right? So there was you didn't use a computer at all. So there was no cut and paste. There's no cut and paste. There was yeah. no cut and paste. So like, um, you know, you'd have your radio play album, AM or or, uh, or the popular uh, FM station radio play, which would be, you know, what a three minute song, mm -hmm. three and a half. But then they'd want a, uh, a dance uh, remix uh, version that they would pl actually play in the disco clubs. Um, and that uh, would oftentimes end up being like, you know, 9, 10, 11 minutes long. Mm. So when you hear those, those um, uh, extended vamps on the end, we had to play every note on that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> you play nine yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. You know, and a lot of times, uh, you know, they would, uh, you know, certainly mute things or whatever, put things in and out. But in the meantime, we'd be there with a horn section and we'd be playing you know, and we'd be playing that for like four minutes because they didn't know exactly where they were going to use it or not, but they had us there and they, you know, so, and then we'd do overdubs, you know, play the same thing on another track because you couldn't just, you know, um, cut and paste. And you couldn't you couldn't auto tune things. No, no. There's no auto tune. No. Would no, you, you would you record these tracks to a click? Now I'm getting very specific, but it's uh, still fascinating. Yeah, to me. yes. They would always still be oh, to yeah, a click. Yeah, the click click uh, ruled in the disco era. That's when I think it really really came uh, into the most popularity. Plus, by the end of that decade, the Lynn drum machine was uh, uh, I don't know if it was invented. I guess it was invented in the 70s, but it became very popular toward the end of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of drummers that were great drummers uh, really 
never made the adjustment to playing with the click well. Mm -hmm. And they kind of lost a lot of work. But, uh, you know, most drummers, Steve Gadd, whoever, you know, these guys could play with a click or play with anything. Yeah. So uh, sometimes we would have the click, uh, or sometimes we, we'd say, we don't want the click. We'll just listen, you know, to what the track is down there. Yeah, that's a mm. that's fascinating. Because I think now, you know, and you, and this is a, a line you said to me, I remember we were in the control room looking, you were looking for a song file, and Charlie, I remember you looked at me and you go, you know, I got blindsided by this whole thing. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? You mean computers? We didn't see this one coming. You know, like, it's like, I, it's, because I'm right in the, right in the sweet spot of where when I went to college and my first recording experiences were to two inch tape. Right. And then when I transferred and went to another college, they had gotten rid of all the tape machines and it was all digital. So. But was it digital tape? It wasn't chips yet. No, it was it was Pro Tools. It was just recording to hard drives. Oh, okay. Because the first thing that they had were uh, digital tape. Which is, I don't even know what that is. Uh, they used to call them ADATs. Oh, ADAT, yes, yeah, yeah, okay. No, we did ADATs. We, because they, right when I was in college, they were training us to be able to work in that medium. Mm -hmm. You know, and then that was this, the musician, to, to me, to look back and to think of the musicianship that existed with the professional musicians, that the singers singing in tune, everybody playing in time. I, I can't even get a band of people to do that together now because we just go in and edit it a little bit, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, th there was a, a, certainly a, a high level of consistency that was required. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you got you look back at all, all, everything that was recorded before. I don't know when did they start auto tuning. Ninety eight, even even before. You know, they didn't also have that many multi track with the with the digital stuff. You know, I mean, when you go back to like, you know, the the fifties and the sixties, man, these cats had to sing and play it right, get it right one time. It yeah. was like get it right or get out. You get know? out. <laughs> yeah, time was money. So were you doing a lot of kind of session work and stuff like that in the 70s prior to the Kid Creole carnival that kind of swept you up for a little while? Yes, yeah. I, 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 let me just give you a, a... I always felt very privileged that um, when I moved to New York, was right out of college in the uh, early 70s, I got to see what it was like, uh, you know, before... Um, before there were DJs doing parties. So if you had a, uh, whatever it was, a wedding or a nightclub or whatever, there, it was all, you had, you had bands. You had, uh, it was all live music, li really live music. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, I got to play with uh, guys in the studio or on live gigs that had played with the NBC Orchestra and, you know, the early Tonight Show uh, and all that stuff. I mean, it was, it was pretty wild. And they would tell me, uh, stories, but I actually got to see what it was like when I first moved to New York. All the hotels, this, uh, the St. Regis, the Ritz, um, Waldorf, whatever, they all had like eight-piece house bands mm. that, that were like five nights a week. And, um, you know, you'd, you'd play over, uh, 
you'd play for whatever, some dancing, you'd play over dinner. Uh, sometimes you'd rehearse a show. There would be an artist that would come in, uh, Tom Jones or Rosemary Clooney or whatever. You'd rehearse the show and, then, and it was like a supper club. Yeah. And this was like all the hotels. So there was like all kinds of work uh, available mm. in addition to the Broadway shows and then the recording studios everything uh, because you needed literally you needed a million dollar studio with the big uh, you know analog recording uh, tapes and everything in big studio rooms to fit like a whole entire string section or you know like a 12 piece brass or whatever uh, it was all centrally located in, in centers like New York uh, Los Angeles I guess there was some going on in Chicago, probably in Texas. Mm -hmm. So they were real hubs, and, and I got to see what that was really like. Uh, not in its heyday, but I got to see a little bit of, of uh, it was still very vibrant. Mm. You know? And you've watched this whole transition. Just change. Change. Yep. To... To now it does, you know, everybody, you know, does a lot of stuff at home or... You know, home studios with the digital studios now for, you know, what? Uh, a thousand bucks. Yeah. No, well, I was going to say maybe like for t 20 grand, you know, you can have like a, a, a state of the art uh, basic studio. You, you, know? you, for 20 grand, yeah, you would be, uh, it would yeah. be an untreated room. Yeah, you get a sex, <laughs> couple of sexy mics, nice, com you, know. you need a nice sounding room yeah, and yeah, yeah. a computer, you're good to go. Yeah. yeah. So it was interesting how that uh, changed everything. Yeah. So at that period in time, you probably did not have to teach. You were just working as a performer. Right. Or were yeah. you doing educational kind of stuff then? No. no I, uh, well, I graduated uh, from Eastman. And uh, the way I ended up in New York, I was ready to, I didn't know what else to do. I was doing really good in Rochester, just working all the time up there. And, uh, you know, playing with Chuck Mangione and, you know, uh, doing a, a lot of the, um, uh, like, Broadway work that would come in or, or jazz gigs up there. Uh, but a friend of mine who was a year older than me went to North Texas State, uh, Dean Pratt, mm -hmm. just by chance after, you know, the, uh, right after I graduated, said, hey, listen, I got a, you know, I got a place in New York. I'm looking for a roommate. <laughs> you know, and I went like, wow, I could do this. Yeah. You know? Uh -huh. And I said, well, and, you know, and then you start weighing it in your head. And you say, well, what's the worst that'll happen? Well, the worst that'll happen is I won't work down there and I'll come back to Rochester and I'll get a master's degree. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, that being said, I moved to New York and uh, I was fortunate enough to, to know Dean Pratt and uh, another uh, friend, a woodwind player in New York, Mickey Schuster. And these guys just introduced me to everybody and I started working within, within a month a lot. Amazing. Yeah. And, um, you know, I played the right doubles, clarinet, flute. So uh, I, I got to do a lot of, like, not only um, album recording work, but a lot of, like, you know, TV and radio jingles and things like that. So it, it was pretty cool, you know. And then we'd play jazz gigs at night and sub on Broadway shows or the, or the you know, um, show bands at the uh, supper clubs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, so, there's just plenty of work to yeah, go around. Yeah, so, so I really didn't have time to teach, yeah. uh, you know, pretty much through the 70s and, and into the 80s. I mean, occasionally somebody would come to me and I'd, I'd um, you know, take on a student or two or whatever. But no, I, I, I was, most of the time I was either either running from studio to studio, gig to gig, you know, mm -hmm. freelancing in New York or on tour with Kid Creel. 
that's or, or I in the seventies before Kid Creole, I went out with uh, uh, Buddy Rich uh, or Woody Herman. You know, so you went out with Buddy Rich and yeah. Woody Herman yeah. and Chuck Mangione. Charlie, these names. Are well, I didn't tour with Chuck. I just did Chuck's uh, uh, shows up in Rochester that were actually recorded and put out on LPs. So it was uh, pretty good. Which which Chuck Mangione EPs are, or LPs? The are LP you that I did with him was called uh, um, Together. 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 It was a double LP. Uh, Steve Gadd played drums and Tony Levin on bass and Jerry Nywood. <laughs> the heaviest band yeah, ever. Yeah. yeah, I was in college, man. Come on, <laughs> give me a break. You know how cool that was. Yeah, he was. Really My like, God. Well, so well, Steve, I think Roseanne told me Steve is like four years older than you. So you must have known him when you were like, did you come to college and everybody was just like. All worship Steve Gadd. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, those, uh, well, he and, uh, I guess, I don't know what, if they were in the same class or not, but they were the same, you know, grouping of uh, college uh, uh, students at, uh, at Eastman. It was Steve Gadd, Tony Levin, um, uh, Chuck Mangione, uh, Lou Soloff. Mm hmm. Uh, you know, they were the, they Jerry were the guys. Yeah, they, they were the, the kind of, you know, the guys that uh, had gone through the program up there and were, were making it, you know. So I, I met them playing Chuck's gigs. That's it, yeah. They were very good. They were <laughs> pretty good guys. <laughs> they were very good. Pretty good players. I said, wow, I like this. You must have been pretty good, too. I mean, obviously, oh, come on, you got in, and then you were hanging out with the, the top guys, you know. Top cats, man. And so because we're at a music school, I think this... My, is interesting, but were you attracted to Eastman because that's kind of where these jazz guys, contemporary music guys, were coming out of? Or did you actually, in, as an 18, 17-year-old, envision yourself being a like symphonic cl clarinet player? No, I never envisioned that because... Uh, but there I, was I, no I, contemporary music at Eastman at that time, right? Well, there was no major. Yeah. There was no contemporary major. Uh, but there were, they had a jazz program. It just wasn't a major. You can get a major uh, in the jazz performance. So, um, I mean, my first instrument was clarinet. So, you know, when you in fourth grade, you learn clarinet. You're learning all the band repertoire, wind ensemble stuff, and, you know, orchestral music and stuff. But, but I was always listening to, to some kind of jazz, whether it was the first stuff that I heard was like uh, Pete Fountain, uh, New Orleans Dixie, Dixieland player. I just... Fell in love with Fell that. in love with Pete Fountain, yeah. And, um, you know, then I got introduced to, like, the big bands, like, uh, you know, Maynard Ferguson, Count Basie, and, you know, I liked that. Mm -hmm. And um, Stan Getz, and, you know. Uh, so I was always into jazz, and I had, like, really good local cats in eastern Pennsylvania that had played with the, the big bands and stuff, and they had just settled down. And there were tons of great jazz players in, the, in, in my area growing up, so they were really my... Uh, uh, you know, role models, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, as far as that goes. But um, uh, there were, I had considered Juilliard, but at, but Juilliard at the time, now remember, I'm this, you know, borderline farm kid, you know, I mean, I didn't live on a farm, but there were farms in my neighborhood. No, it's a small town yeah. kid, I'm Rural, sure. You know, yeah. uh, 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 suburban, rural suburban. And um, I had heard that the Juilliard was located in, in this part of New York called Spanish Harlem. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, now I don't know too much about Spanish Harlem, 
but I'm not sure that I would blend there too well. You know, I, I'm not sure I'm ready for the big city. Even yeah. though, like, uh, in, in high school, I would always go into the, into the village, into the West Village, and go to Vanguard or the, uh, the Village Gate or, you know, different uh, clubs to hear jazz, primarily jazz uh, in those days. I, I didn't think I was ready to actually live in, uh, in New York City in an area that I had never been before and I had heard stories that maybe it was like a little rough. A rougher neighborhood, yeah. So Interesting. Rochester, New York. Rochester, New York came calling. So for me, Rochester, New York was like a, you know, like a, a big city. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, my, my friend Mickey Schuster, who was from Yonkers, whose teacher was from New York City, uh, was uh, up, went to Eastman for one year. <laughs> and all he did is complain. <laughs> he goes, ah, oh, why did I leave New York? What am I doing in Rochester? So anyway, <laughs> but, but we remain friends, uh, you know, uh, for our whole life. And we still see each other. And, and, but he, he was very ins instrumental in me working when I just you know, got off the bus and moved to New York City. I owe him a, a big debt of gratitude, him and, uh, and um, Dean Pratt. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing story, Charlie. I mean, that, that alone is just fascinating. When, when I first moved to New York, here, here's something. There, were, there weren't even beepers. There weren't cell phones. There weren't beepers, man. So, like, every Wednesday afternoon from about 12 to 2, 2.15, You'd all go to the Union Hall, and the Union Hall was Roseland. Roseland Ballroom. Roseland Ballroom. The, the 802, local 802 Musicians Union, was uh, in Roseland Ballroom. They had office up there, and they would take the ballroom floor and Wednesdays afternoon from about 12 to, to 2. And you need, need to show your, your uh, union card to get in. Mm-hmm. And then you walk in and just picture the whole ballroom floor. It's and a large and room. And over, uh, there would be a, there, there, on, on this corner, there would be all like the wedding club date cats with, with big calendars, big calendars. And, and they'd had the gigs and they'd write your name down. That, and put, that's how you would get a gig in New York. You obviously you had to know somebody. And then over here you had like all the Broadway cats, you know, mm -hmm. were in that corner. Then another corner you'd have all like, like all the jazz cats. Next to them would be all the Latin, you know, bands. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was it was amazing and, and everybody all the musicians would meet there, all the studio guys and everybody. And how uh, many people were we talking? Like five hundred? A thousand? Five thousand? I would say anywhere from two to two to five hundred. Yeah. Possibly. So um, you'd go in there, you'd meet, you'd get your assignments, you'd book your gigs, and there was, <laughs> there was a guy that looked like something out of a 1940s movie yeah. on, a little, on a little like bandstand with a table in front of him and a microphone. And, and the different, different people would go up and they'd page you. So somebody would, somebody would go up and say, could you pay Paul? Uh, could you could you page Paul Madison and tell him uh, to tell him to see Sammy Levine? He's got work for him Saturday. And then they, the guy would announce him on the, on the PA, and then you'd hear it, and you'd go over to Sammy Levine or whatever, and, and he said, "Paul, Paulie, <laughs> Paulie, your cigar, 
Paul, you open on the 23rd? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me check my book. Yeah, I'm, I'm open on the 23rd. All right. Call the office. Call the office on Thursday, and they'll give you directions. <laughs> That's the way it worked, man. Directions to where the, to the gig, gig is? To where your gig was How going. about what the tunes were? Every, you were just expected to know the tunes. And, the, and if you were the new kid in town? You better hit the shed, yeah. Kid, yeah. You know the tunes? You know the tunes? <laughs> I guess you just say yes. That's where you start to learn your New York yeah, uh, yeah, but, shuffle. Yeah, but like, if you say, yeah, yeah, if you say yes and you show up and you don't know them, you, the word gets back and then you don't get called. So you got to go back to the shed. Right, right. But my friend, Mickey Schuster, who I said, gave me the, the list of the songs when I was in Rochester. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of them, you know, were kind of like jazz standards at the time or whatever, or, or the pop tunes of the day. And um, so I, I knew a lot of them, but I'm telling you, man, they were guys. <laughs> if, I knew, if I knew 2,000 songs, there were, there were guys that knew 5,000 songs. Oh, yes. There's always those guys, you know what I yeah. mean? I mean... <laughs> so anyway, that, that was the music business. That yeah. we, got, we got way away from... Uh, like Kid Creole and touring and all of that stuff, but that's, that's you know that was that, that's what I was saying. I, I felt very, uh, very, I don't know, blessed, honored, whatever, fortunate that I got to see what it used to be like. And I used to, I as a twenty-something, I was hanging with these guys that were fifty, sixty, or whatever that had lived through the heyday mm. of like New York City, had played with Charlie Parker, you know, had had played with, uh, you know, the original Ellington band and stuff like this. It was pretty wild, man. You guys had played with, like, um, you know, the early rock, uh, you know, cats. You know, all the yeah. early, early, it was just oh, amazing. Chuck yeah, Berry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty amazing stuff. That is amazing. And to me, I mean, this is an amazing story to think that all of the gigs in the New York area could be booked in two hours on a Wednesday afternoon. A lot of, there were no, the, the big thing was when they invented the beeper. So you knew you could, uh, you knew you could uh, uh, get the heads up and then you'd get to a phone and, and, and call. Yeah. But uh, there was also, in addition to, um, to the union hall, the other way we got gigs is there was a thing called radio registry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a service. Um, but you'd, again, you'd have to call into the service periodically to check messages. So people would uh, leave messages for you. And it was primarily more for TV and radio work. Mm-hmm. So I'd call in and they'd say, oh, uh, uh, call Louise Messina. Uh, you know, uh, she has work for you for Thursday. So you'd call in and, you know, you get the... Uh, that, that, so they were, uh, you know, like an answering service for, for musicians. Mm-hmm. Radio registry. Everybody was on it. Charlie, these are fascinating stories. Let's jump ahead then, because I, I want to, I want to get a couple things in here, um, but all of this leads perfectly to the end because I think I notice the beautiful Bill Clinton picture in the studio, and I feel like you have some, some cool stories on your interactions with the Clinton family. Well. Um, what was that? Was that playing at his inauguration? No, we, we actually did play at uh, one of his inauguration balls, but um, that was every year they, they, um, the White House throws a party on the South Lawn of the White House, and they have a, a you know, a name uh, act, mostly musical act, uh, as an entertainer mm-hmm. for the event, and 
I think it's for all the United Press and their families, it's, you know, and they throw this little party for them. So we were on the stage, uh, nice stage set up, ready to perform, and we're all just waiting for, for Bill and, and uh, Hillary to, uh, you know, come out and say hello, greet, do their meet and greet, and then we, we play our show. So um, we're waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, they come out. We see them walking down. And uh, Bill catches my saxophone out of his, out of the corner of his eye or whatever. And he goes, oh, a saxophone player. Oh, I got to talk to you. No. So he just made a beeline for me, came over and, you know, started talking to me and said, oh, what kind of horn do you have? You know, because he's a sax player. He's a sax player. We started like, talking real, yeah. vintage horns and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, and uh, so meanwhile, out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking, I'm looking at like, you know, Hillary at the front podium, looking back saying like, you know, like, can we do this? You know, <laughs> you know so, so, um, uh. so he, uh, you know, they went, they meet and greet and then they're, they're, they're exiting uh, as we're getting ready to play. And he comes back to me. Mm -hmm. And then we start, you know, kibitzing, starting to talk horn, you know, shop talk again and, and everything. And so uh, uh, to my uh, uh, great delight, there was a, a White House photographer there who got a couple of great shots. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah, yeah, so it was really kind of cool. And and what's even more amazing is I actually got a copy of it. You know? Yeah. It didn't you end up some, somewhere else, you know. Yeah. But we also had some uh, some photo ops with him and the whole band, you know, after the show in the White House uh, uh, proper. So, uh, good time was had by all. What? So was that in the early '90s or the late '90s? Because they were in the White House for like eight that, years. Yeah. I'm thinking that was probably. Uh, wow, it had to be early early '90s, or could it be? Could have been the late '80s. Here's where I show my uh, political ignorance. It was, it uh, was, he was elected in 92, I think. Okay, then so. it was, then it was uh, early 90s. Yeah, yeah. early 90s. And that, I, I, you know, I remember as a kid seeing that as a thing, like he would get the tenor out and bust like a blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple blues licks over tunes and stuff, you know. Yeah, hot coffee or something. Yeah, like. you're like, what's this, is the president? Yeah, that's just, he was a different, a little change in pace there. Yeah, it was, it was uh, refreshing. So, as this dwindling uh, scene as the DJ took over, is that kind of what led you into teaching? I mean, you've created an empire. I mean, you're in it, your head is in it. You can't, it's like when you're in the river, you can't see how big it is, but it's like we're standing in the middle of the Mississippi of uh, modern contemporary music education that's thoroughly rooted in well, the, well, the traditions of music education, but. Um. Uh, well, let me think. That's well. I, I when I came off the road, I would you know I would uh, have some students I would teach, and um, then when when we weren't touring that much because he kind of took a hiatus and uh, was doing uh, uh, Kid Creole. I mean, was was doing a lot of uh, just producing other bands and other groups and things in in Europe. Either in I think he was living in Manchester for uh, England for the most part, but he also lived in different places, Copenhagen or whatever. So he had kind of really um, uh, uprooted and moved over there. And like I said, was doing more production, not, not as many live gigs at the time. Mm -hmm. And when he um, would have some live gigs, he'd, he'd uh, use a combination of uh, some American musicians like myself, we would fly over and they would have like um, 
like a European rhythm section or whatever. Um, so there was there was a lot less touring at that point. Plus, you know, got to realize, man, I had toured a, um, a fair amount through the '80s into the '90s, and so you know, you get a little road weary after a while. So a it, it's kind of nice yeah. not to you know get on a bus or an airplane. But um, anyway, I, I started becoming a very popular or in, in demand for as a teacher, mm-hmm. and I always like teaching, sharing the music, you know. I've always been about the music. Lord knows I wasn't about the money. Yeah. But um, um, so at one point, I, I had a lot of students, and um, uh, Roseanne and I uh, were together, at the, uh, and we were both kind of like looking around and and seeing, well, her, her daughter was a saxophone player, mm-hmm. actually one of my students. So that was our uh, initial connection, uh, how we met each other. But um, we just felt like there was something missing in education at the time, mm. or at least something that, 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 uh, that I felt and that she saw in me, Roseanne saw a lot in me, uh, as far as this two recognized it through me teaching her daughter, that um, um, maybe we should uh, combine our our resources, hers, uh, you know, uh, brilliant uh, business, savvy. business savvy organizer, and everything, and me with, uh, you know, musical experience and and um, you know, love of music. Well, she loves music as well. But so we decided to um, uh, start uh, a music school, and uh, the emphasis was on on really learning how to apply music uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a band setting. And it was almost like, like um, kind of like a training school on, on how to be, how to have a, a, a certain professionalism and know which end is up and how to conduct yourself uh, musically and, um, you know, on, on, a, uh, uh, on a stage, you know, not just a recital setting, but, you know, how to be enter- entertaining and how to really share uh, the gift of music, you know, with an audience and how to prepare for that. And so uh, we started in our attic in White Plains with uh, 35 of my students at the time. And um, we were, uh, it just took off that year and we got asked to leave by our landlord because <laughs> we were making, we were just having way too much fun. Way too much there, fun, you know? right, yeah. So anyway, uh, then for one year we were uh, nomadic. We, we uh, rented space at a... Um, uh, a community room in a in a church, and uh, by the end of that year, we had taken over the community room, the neighboring room, the uh, the the pastor's uh, meeting room, the uh, you know the uh, uh, entrance way to the worship hall. So, yes. <laughs> so it kept growing. Uh, you know, it was uh, uh, really growing, and then we found this place uh, where we could build here in Elmsford. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been quite a journey. Never, uh, I would have never imagined that it would have gotten, you know, way out of hand like this. <laughs> so big. Now we have like, four thousand square feet and <laughs> hundreds of students. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think the one thing that I've really found uh, gratifying is that the majority of our students, um, high majority, are are out there all over. You go to uh, I go anywhere in New York or around. And I run into uh, you know alums or faculty like yourself that are that are playing all over, and that, that's really what the um, the goal was uh, from the beginning mm-hmm. to just have help people, help uh, musicians um, 
get out and play, share their share their their uh, passion with an audience. And you you really created a community, too. You know, I think uh, when I was freelance teaching, and it's that's great, it's fun, and you see one person, and these two people never see each other or never get to play guitar together. You know, that that's immediately when I came here, and I tried to explain it to other people, outsiders, even non-musicians. Like, well, the school is a giant community. And exactly like you're saying, I can, they're all here and then we actually physically spend time together at performances, at shows, at venues and clubs, you know? It's not just, it's not just a Facebook group, you know. It's it's an actual, real, breathing yeah, human. Yeah, I love it. Element of I, it. Yeah, I, I love that aspect of it. Um, because that, that's you know in a, in a uh, you you brought up like it's not a Facebook group or we're we're not we don't have digital relationships, man. It's you know, not about we're, we're, that. We're all yeah. up in it, man. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and that's why that's why um, I still think that even though there's a lot of uh, wonderful things you can learn from uh, the internet, YouTube, or whatever, all that stuff. Man, you know, music is personal. And and I really think that you really have to uh, have that human contact with somebody that um, is maybe better than you uh, uh, in the craft, has more experience, knows something, whatever, or just has a different, uh, different uh, uh, perspective, uh, you know? Yeah, because it's a real community event, right? You know, and people are becoming so isolated and so alone. In uh, modernity, has taken us further away from each other. You know, and you're, you are, and I, am on your side of the fight, trying to bring people back together, actual human to human connection. You know. Yeah, and what what better way to do it than music? Yeah. You know, music's always been uh, a uniting force. Hmm. Now. Do you think that, yeah, I want to, in a way, I think, and you have alluded to this a little bit, almost in a way, Legand, as, as Kid Creel was maybe too advanced for modern America, and I've heard you and Roseanne kind of talk about this, it's like almost Legand is too, too it's a, ahead of its time. It's a precursor, <coughs> you know, like Excuse me. performance teaching kids about movement on stage, how to talk to an audience, as well as playing the right notes in time. You know, these are, this is like, yeah, if you, you know, you've talked about it, like maybe well, it's, it's almost like. I, I, I feel um, that when we started out as we did it, yeah, we, uh, it was um, ahead, of, ahead of its time, mm -hmm. that aspect of it. There was also at that time the uh, brewing more popular music um, approaches to music, both on a college level and and private level. So I feel like we, along with uh, you know other people like that, people that were out at uh, USC who I, I've met. I'm a m member of, uh, um, of the APME uh, Popular Music uh, Conference, and um, so we found out that uh, you know whatever 15 years ago there were other people that were kind of. Um, feeling that that popular music should have a, a more of a a place in college mm -hmm. or or, or uh, music education 
So that was going on, but I don't think anybody really had the had the vision that we had, and a lot of it was, you know, really goes right back to Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Yeah, because uh, you know, I mean, Chuck Chuck Mangione, when we worked with him, it was it was very, you know, um, not flamboyant, but you know, he always cared how he looked, and he was always trying to reach an audience. Okay, mm. so you know, I had that experience, and but. Um, when I joined um, Kid Creole, not just from the musical aspect in, in the recording studio, but then when I got out and started performing with these guys that who had, they were so open-minded mm. and they, they I, guess I call them, they were fearless. They would try anything, you know, uh, concepts and put things and this and that together that, that you would think couldn't work. And they would just laugh and they would make it work and have a ball doing it. It was, uh, it was life-changing, you know, because now instead of like, you know, like being a horn player that was like, uh, you know, the background, like, like you still see today, uh, except for things like uh, Bruno Mars is the guy that uh, comes closest to what, you know, Kid Creole was doing at the time uh, as far as involving the actual band players in the show, mm -hmm. not just as a backup band. Um, so anyway, to be performing, be part of the band like that, a part of the show, uh, was just absolutely uh, liberating and, and life-changing. So anyway, that's what we were trying to bring to the school. Yeah. And uh, you were a part of a band that, uh, that we tried to make a, a professional run at, and it was still my favorite band, but um, it was very difficult to keep the school going and keep that band uh, known as The Element, which mm -hmm. you were a part of. Was a uh, going because you know we had a uh, we, the players had to make money because yeah. it wasn't just high school kids anymore. Now it was uh, you know college graduates that had student loans and families and apartments to pay for and, and all of that. So so we had to let that one go. But nobody else had anything like that going that I've seen across the country. No, not. I haven't seen anything like that. Yeah, and if I have to say, that's probably, Rosanna, my biggest disappointment, that we weren't able to actually uh, uh, keep that keep that going. Mm -hmm. And everybody that was in that band uh, is really doing well. I mean, you know, Anthony Amati was part of that band, and he's out with uh, little Steven and the Disciples of Soul now touring all over, all over Europe like I did. Oh, yeah, that's so great that he is getting to do that. That's amazing. You know, Steven Salzedo is out, you know, doing his uh, own shows now and, and Popular Man, you know, did the Jules Holland show with, you know, all that, everything. Everybody's doing great. So good to see it. Yeah. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for taking time to hang out with me and share these stories. I feel like I have to do like a nine-part series with you because I know you have hundreds more stories to tell, <laughs> you know? Like, we're barely scratching the surface. Well, these are certainly all the safe stories. <laughs> these, <laughs> yes, we're keeping it PG because that's an appropriate thing to do. But seriously, thank you so much for taking time out today, Charlie. Okay, Paul, always, always a pleasure, man. And uh, uh, just so uh, honored and, and delighted to have you on board. Uh, both uh, in the school and uh, and beyond that too, you're you're one of the the, the best stand up guys I know. Ah, thank you, Charlie.
Hey, cats. Thank you so much for listening to The Hang with Charlie Legand. He is one of the best. He's the man. Come by Legand Music School. Come to the jam. Do your rehearsal there. Take some lessons. Come hang out. It's a great, 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 great spot. I'm thankful to be an employee there. Uh, <clears throat> my dear friend, D-Money MAF representing Mo Vegas 315 represent Daryl Bush called me up and he was like, dude, 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 you have to have, you have to have an outro. Uh, so I walked over to the piano and totally hit a D and a C in the bass. Anyway, here is an outro. Uh, <clears throat> a few of my friends, we end the conversation by saying one in a high pitched voice. Uh, the origin of this goes back uh, many, many times, but we have a friend who, in his Rastafarianness, and for some reason he always did it in like a high-pitched voice, he'd always be like, one! So, there's only one, one farewell I can give to you before I say farewell. Thank you for checking out Secret Famous. We got stickers coming, t-shirts, thongs, everything, marketing! Yeah, it'll be like, you know me, it'll be a couple months. Anyway, y'all! Have an awesome day. Thank you for checking it out. Enjoy the jams and party hard. 